Well, good morning again. If, if you've been with us over the last month or so, we've been journeying through a sermon series in the letter of 1 Peter that we have titled Holy Endurance. And in the first part of the letter, Peter has really been reassuring and encouraging his readers in their new and secure identities in Christ as God's redeemed people that are now called to live distinct lives that reflect the God who has saved them. This is a call to holy endurance because these believers were striving to be faithful to Jesus in a first century Roman society that at best would have mocked their faith as simple and backwards, but at worst would have hated them and mistreated them for rejecting Roman values and ideas. Peter's call was and is not an easy call, but over and over again, he assures his readers that their suffering was not in vain and their future is both certain and wonderful. And this morning, Peter comes to the climax of the first part of the letter as he exhorts his readers in their corporate identity as the people of God, as Christ's church. You know, if we, if we were to ask a thousand random people, who is the church? What is the church supposed to do? We would probably receive a myriad of answers, many of them probably negative, often deservingly so. But Peter has an explicitly Christ-centered and therefore God-centered view of who the church is and what its purpose in the world is. And if your view of the church this morning is a negative one, or if you find yourself more and more attracted to a solitary life with Jesus that's detached from the quote-unquote institutional church, then what I hope you hear this morning and see this morning is a vision for the church that is Jesus-saturated and beautifully glorious, and that it's one that's absolutely necessary for the Christian life and for the hope of the world because it's Jesus' vision for his bride. And as we walk through this passage in 1 Peter, I really want us to just notice three things. First, the foundation of the church. Second, the identity of the church. And third, the purpose of the church. So first, let's notice the foundation of the church. Look again with me at verses 4 through 7. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, for, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. These verses are full of Old Testament imagery and verses. And the significance of what P Peter is saying here should not be missed, especially because many commentators believe he was writing to a primarily Gentile audience. At the very least, it was a mixed audience of Jew and Gentile. And he's saying that by coming to Christ, that reference in verse 4 to the living stone is a reference to Jesus. By coming to him, Christians become a part of a spiritual house or the spiritual house or the temple of God that he is building for himself. That, it, that by believing in the living stone... 
the resurrected Christ. We ourselves become living stones in his divine building project. Remember the story of Israel. The thing that most set Israel apart from other nations was that God dwelt in their midst. First through the tabernacle in the wilderness and then through the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was a place where God's special presence dwelled amongst his people. It was where the priest mediated Israel's relationship with, with God through sacrifices. It was where forgiveness and atonement could be found. And now here in our letter, Peter is saying that through Jesus, the, ch the church has now become the temple of God. Karen Jobes puts it this way, the Christian community is portrayed as a spiritual temple, applying that now it, not a literal stone building in Jerusalem, is the place of God's earthly dwelling by the Holy Spirit, a place of true worship an acceptable sacrifice. This shouldn't surprise us. It was Jesus himself who told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, meaning Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. But an hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And while Scripture is clear that each individual believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, don't miss that Peter's language is corporate here. It is the people of God, the universal church, this diverse, multi-ethnic family that Peter says are the living stones that God is building into his spiritual house. How is this possible? I mean, look around the room. I love you all. But how could it be possible that we are where the living God dwells on earth? How could this group of misfits be the place where true worship happens? Because it has nothing to do with us. We are only the spiritual house of God in so much that we are built on the right foundation, that we're building our lives on the right foundation. And what is the right foundation? In verses 6 and 7, Peter is quoting significant Messianic Old Testament passages. And what I mean when I say Messianic passages are passages or verses that foreshadow or predict a coming king and savior that would redeem the people of Israel and fulfill the promises of God to Abraham and David. And in verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, which says, Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. And verse, eight, and verse 7 quotes Psalm 118, 21, which says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Long before the birth of Jesus, interpreters had begun to see these Hebrew scriptures and this specific reference to the, to the stone as being messianic, as pointing to the coming Messiah and Redeemer. Jesus himself uses the Psalm 118 passage to address the religious leaders of the day's rejection of his ministry. And Peter claimed that this stone was Jesus in Acts chapter 4 when he was explaining to the religious leaders how and whose authority he was able to heal a disabled Man, he said this, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Listen, the clearest place where Jesus was rejected as the stone the builders rejected is on the cross. The one who had come to offer life and freedom and forgiveness and his kingdom was killed for it by the very ones he came to save. But it's precisely through his death and resurrection that Jesus becomes the living stone, the cornerstone on which his people are being built into the temple of God. You see, a building will not last without a sure foundation. And historically speaking, the cornerstone was the most important part of a building project. Because it was the first stone laid and every other stone either extended out from it or was built upon it. If this cornerstone was off, then the whole building would be off. If the cornerstone was strong and true, then the rest of the building would be as well. Hey, let's bring this down to our level. Let's bring this to our lives. The first and most foremost and important implication for us to see is that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, him and him alone. One of the things you will often hear Pastor Andy say is that Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church. Why does he say that? Because if we were to place our trust and our hope and faith in anything or person other than Jesus, it will fail us. And it won't stand up in the storms of life. The destiny of the church does not rest on a pastor or a certain person. It does not rest on tradition or human charisma. It does not rest on good programs or preaching. It does not rest on efforts, our efforts, or good works. It does not rest on political power or wealth. It rests purely and solely on the person of Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. He alone can hold it. And Peter says the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. This assurance is both to the first century Christian trying to be faithful to Jesus amongst the trials and pressures of the Roman Empire and to the Christian in 2023 who is trying to be faithful to Jesus amongst the trials and pressures of living in the United States of America. Your life may feel shaky. The world may feel wobbly. The church might seem to be declining, but friend, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the only thing that will still be standing 10,000 years from now, the only thing that will still matter are the things that are built on Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The second implication I want us to note about this language of, a living, of living stones in a spiritual house is the corporate nature of our faith. Job's is helpful here again. She writes, the imagery of the living stones being built into a single unit implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Let me say that again. It implies that the significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others. Listen, in this passage specifically, Peter isn't painting a picture of individual and isolated temples. He's painting the picture of one singular united temple that is made up of countless living stones mortared together by the Holy Spirit and resting on Christ, the cornerstone. Most of us in this room have been shaped 
by Western civilization and American culture, which leads often to us overemphasizing the personal nature of our faith. Yes and amen. We are called to and are privileged to have personal relationships with Jesus Christ. We talk about that often here at City Life. But just as, and even more importantly, we were saved as a corporate people, as a family. To be united to Christ is to be united to his body, the church. As we come to the living stone, he brings us together with all his other living stones. If you saw a wall that was missing some bricks, at least two things would be true. Those bricks would not be fulfilling their purpose, and the wall would not be as strong as it was meant to be. This is true of us. If a Christian is not connected to Christ's church, then they are not fulfilling their purpose, and the church is not as strong as it's meant to be. The apostles and the New Testament would not recognize all I need is Jesus and me attitude that's pervasive at times in American Christianity. Friends, can I just tell you that living a life of faithfulness to Jesus in this world, to do that, you need the church. You aren't enough in and of yourself. And you need more than just a personal quiet time with Jesus. You need more than a YouTube preacher, and you need more than a good book or podcast. What you need is to sit beside flesh and blood, imperfect, hypocritical brothers and sisters in Christ who with trembling voices can look at you and you look at them and say, Jesus is real, the gospel is true, you are forgiven, you are loved, you are saved, he is worth it, keep going. It will not always be this way, he is coming. And you need to pray those truths together. And you need to sing them off key together. And you need to hear them read and preached over you together. And you need to sit in sometimes awkward living rooms with your city group and discuss them together. Why? Because we can't do this alone. We can't. And if you believe that you can do this Christian life alone, you are believing a lie. We need one another more than you could possibly know. So Christ is the foundation of the church. Next, let's notice the identity of the church. Read verses 8 through the first half of 9 with me. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey his word. You were, they were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Peter, Peter tells us that the destiny of every human being who has ever lived or will ever live depends on the response to the person of Jesus. To the one who believes in him, he becomes the cornerstone. But to the one who does not believe and rejects him, he becomes the stone they stumble on and the rock they trip over. Why? Because they disobey his word. And then verse 9, but you, this is an emphatic you, a contrast between those Peter has just talked about in verse 8 and now his readers he's addressing in verse 9. That's who they are, but you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his possession. This identity, this is identity language. Identity is who you are, or, or maybe, or better, what you allow to define who you are. Often today we define our identities by what we do or what we feel. But let's just flesh that out for just a moment. If my identity is that I'm a pastor then my view of myself and my joy are determined by how many of you come on a Sunday morning, how well I think I did on my sermon, 
and making sure everybody in the church likes me or not. Think about how fragile of an identity that is. That can change from week to week and day to day. The same would be true of anyone's profession in here. Or even if what you do is a hobby. Maybe your identity is that you're a runner. What happens when you blow out your knee? Who are you then? And then think about the idea of placing your identity in what you feel for a moment. How stable are our trust and trustworthy are our feelings? Sure, we have moments of confidence and clarity and joy, but these are islands in the midst of a sea of confusion and insecurity and doubt and anxiety and anger and jealousy and pride and apathy. An identity that's based on what we feel will be about as stable and secure as a toddler on one of those inflatable tools in the North YMCA wave pool. Have you been there? It's a terrible place. (laughs) Even more so for a toddler. When that terrible noise sounds and those terrible waves begin, I hold on to my son for dear life. And we get thrown about on that tube up and down, to and fro, side to side, just trying to stay afloat just trying to stay above the water. I know I'm being funny here, but listen, if we base it on our feelings, our identity will be tossed to and fro from one feeling or thought or impulse to the next. That cannot hold us up. But for Peter, the identity, the identity of the church is rooted in God and what he's done for us. This is an identity that we can stand on. It's one that can hold us up, that doesn't change. Notice what he says, you are a chosen race. Your version might translate it simply as chosen people. This is the same language that God uses of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Again, don't miss the significance that now in Christ, the church is God's chosen people. The word translated as race here is the Greek word that means genos or genos. It can mean descending from a common lineage or heritage. When Isaiah uses it of the people of Israel in the the book of Isaiah 43, it's because they have a common heritage as the descendants of Abraham. When Peter uses it here in his letter of Christians, it refers to the fact that we all have been born again, as he's already told us in chapter 1. We all share the same father. This does not mean that our ethnicity or our earthly cultural heritage or things like our gender no longer have any value or no longer matter to us in any way. But it does mean that our spiritual heritage, our identity in Christ as God's chosen people supersedes every other thing or identity that we might claim. This is what Paul was getting at in Galatians 3, 28, when he said, There is now no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that those things are no longer true of us or real or matter. He is saying that our common union with Christ is the most important and truest thing about us and that it unites us together across racial, gender, and socioeconomic boundaries that might otherwise divide us. This is why when racism or sexism or pick your other ism exists in the church, it's an insult to God and the gospel. And it is antithetical to what God has done in us and through us. 
So we are a chosen race, united by our common heritage as the adopted children of God. Peter then says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Earlier in the passage, Peter also said they are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This language in verse 9 references again back to the Old Testament, to Exodus 19, a really important passage. When God told Moses on Mount Sinai to tell the Israelites this, Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom, a priest, and my holy nation. What did it mean that Israel was to be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation? It didn't mean that there was no longer a Levitical priesthood who served a specific role in Israel's worship and covenant with Yahweh. But it did mean that every person in the nation was called to live a priest-like life and role as God's people. Priests were set apart and sanctified to live lives of service to God, lives of holiness. This is the priest-like life that Peter has in view here. And every Israelite individually was called to live distinct lives from the nations around them. Lives that were set apart to worship and serve Yahweh. Peter says that the church and followers of Jesus are now called to the same priest-like life. And the way we offer spiritual sacrifices today that are acceptable to God is, of course, not by offering blood sacrifices. Jesus Christ put it into that once for all, being the one-time sacrifice for us. No, the way we offer spiritual sacrifices is by living lives that are singularly and wholly devoted to loving, serving, and worshiping Jesus. You see, Israel's holiness and faithfulness to God's covenant was never meant to end on themselves. Deuteronomy 4.6, Moses tells the people to carefully follow them, meaning the commands that God's given them. For this will show your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. When they hear about these statutes, they will say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. See, their faithfulness as a holy nation was meant to be a light to the nations, to draw others to Israel's God. And Peter is saying that the same call is true for Christians Jesus points to this reality in the Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. As God's chosen people, as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, we are meant to live distinct and sanctified lives that are set apart in devotion to Jesus. And in doing so, we're meant to shine the light of the gospel to our neighbors. D.A. Carson sums up the identity of the church well by saying, in other words, all of our special status, all of our corporate identity as the people of God, the church of the living God, is not to promote pride or a sense of intrinsic superiority. Still less, God help us, one-upmanship with respect to others' religions or other races. Rather, it is that we might declare the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. So the pursuit of of holiness is not about us being holier than thou, us being superior or self-righteous to those around us. It is about living distinct lives, worshiping Christ that draws other to himself. Let's close by considering the purpose 
of the church. Verses 9 and 10 go on to say, So that you may proclaim the praises of the one you called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The purpose of the church is to proclaim the praises of the one who has called us and rescued us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the demonstrate part of the City Life Church vision statement. It's one of the, and one of the ways we do this in context here is by living distinct and holy lives as God's chosen people. Listen, there is no way to make biblical Christianity cool. There's not. There's no way to make biblical Christianity normal. Biblical Christianity is weird. It is. It's weird when someone believes that God still speaks through a book that was written thousands of years ago. It's weird when a person is faithful to one man or one woman for a lifetime. It's weird when someone believes that sex is only meant for the confines of covenant marriage. It's weird when someone lives below their financial means just so they can be generous and give more of their money away. It's weird when someone prays for their enemies. It's weird when a person denies desires that our culture celebrates. It's weird when someone confesses a hidden grudge and asks for forgiveness. It's weird when someone doesn't engage in workplace gossip. It's weird when someone considers others before themselves. It's weird. It was weird in first century Roman Empire and Asia Minor where these believers were living. And it's just as weird today in 2023 in the United States of America. And somehow, mysteriously, God uses this weirdness, this holiness, to compel others to see that Jesus is real. They see someone living a distinct life like the real Jesus, like God's called us to, and it goes, wow, that's something's different about that person. Sometimes it's not a great reaction. But often God will use that to compel someone to see that Jesus is real. You see, you don't make Jesus more attractive by watering down the life he's called us to. You make him attractive by keeping it weird. Finally, notice that the purpose is to proclaim the praises of him. Evangelism should be worshipful, not just sharing facts or information. Hey, this is one of the reasons, you know, vision statements, they're kind of, sometimes you, you care about them, sometimes you don't. We, we try to live ours out. This is one of the reasons that we chose the goodness of Jesus language for our vision statement. Why? Because if you've tasted and seen that Jesus is good, you can't help but declare that. You can't help but proclaim that. If, as verse 10 says, you know that once you were not a people, lost in your brokenness, but now you are God's people, his chosen people, you can't help but share that with others. If you know that once you had not received mercy because you had rejected the rule of God and chosen the way of sin and self, but now you've received mercy through Jesus, then worship and praise should just spew out of you wherever you go. This call to proclaim his praises as his holy and set-apart people is not a call to a bunker mentality. Okay? It's not a call to shelter in isolation, just to be, let me just go over here and hide away from the world and I'll be okay. 
and they can do whatever. That's not what this call is. That would be what Jesus called hiding your light under a basket in the Sermon on the Mount. And you actually can't fulfill your purpose as a Christian living a bunker reality, a bunker mindset. No, it's a call to live distinct, weird lives in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your third place environments, around your friends, around your families. It's a call to shine that same light that rescued you into that same darkness that you were saved out of. And the beautiful thing is that we don't have to do this alone. It's not just your purpose individually. It's our purpose as a church. The same church that was founded on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, who said the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Anyone who believes in him, anyone who believes in him, this morning, this morning, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So we are free to, and we can live weird biblical lives, and we can proclaim his praises because he's worth it. Let's pray together.